0: This is episode 227 with Kinesiology PhD, the 2016 100-kilometer U.S. national champion and published scientist, Mr. Jeff Burns. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is a deep dive on the science of super shoes. My guest is Jeff Burns, who has degrees in biomedical engineering and kinesiology with a PhD from the University of Michigan. He's published on a variety of topics, studying elite athletes at the ultra and middle distances in numerous scientific journals, as well as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and other major news publications. He's also an internationally recognized ultramarathoner, being the 2016 100K national champ, the 2016 winner of the New Orleans Rock and Roll Marathon, and the 12th place finisher at the 2018 Comrades Marathon. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. For more than a decade, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's internal biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you. And then they offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that might be outside of your unique personal optimal zones. Now you can get 25% off any tests that they offer with code STRENGTHRUNNING. Go to insidetracker.com STRENGTHRUNNING to see all the details. We're also supported by Elemental Labs, which makes my favorite salty electrolyte mix. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and you can sign up for a free sample pack to see what flavors you like. My personal favorites are citrus and watermelon. You'll get eight packets, four flavors, and you'll only have to pay five bucks for shipping here in the U.S. That's drinklmnt.com strengthrunning. Okay, our guest today is a force to be reckoned with. Jeff Burns is a scientist who studies running, physiology, biomechanics, and sport performance. His work has been published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, the Journal of Applied Physiology, and many other scientific journals. He's also an amazing ultra-endurance athlete, setting a championship record on his way to being the 100K national champ in 2016. He's represented the U.S. over 50K and 100K distances, and he finished fifth at both the 2016 and 2018 IAU 100K World Championships. He competed collegiately for the University of Michigan's cross-country and track teams and also spent many years working in a specialty running store. In this conversation, we're going deep on the topic of super shoes. I want to thank the strength-running community who follows me on Twitter for submitting these questions. This is a listener-generated episode made possible by your curiosity. Our main focus is on the benefits of super shoes, the drawbacks, when to best use them in training and racing for maximum benefit, and what we may see in the future as this technology develops. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Jeff Burns. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. This will be a lot of fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going
0: to be more fun because I didn't come up with any of the questions. (laughs) This is entirely crowdsourced by me on Twitter. So big thanks to the Strength Running audience on Twitter for answering my questions about super shoes. And Jeff, I'm really excited to answer all these questions with you and sort of go over how best to use super shoes, how to think about their benefits, any negatives or drawbacks about these shoes and and what we might expect in the future as this technology continues to develop. So we're going to jump right in and, and sort of start answering these questions. But before we do that, could you give us like the one minute cliff notes of when we're talking about a super shoe, what are we actually talking about?
1: So we need to be talking about a essentially a next generation foam that is highly resilient and highly compliant. Maybe we can unpack those terms if you want, but but it, so it needs to be a, a next level polymer, new, new generation polymer foam, and um, probably going to have a very rigid plate or rigid materials moving through it in order to facilitate fast running on that resilient and compliant foam. So thinking about, you know, just a carbon fiber plate in a, you know, regular old EVA running shoe is not a super shoe. Um, so you gotta have, you gotta have the good foam and a stiff architecture in the good foam.
0: Oh, that's interesting because I was under the impression that any shoe with a carbon plate could be labeled a super shoe. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the foam first. What, what makes this next generation foam so resilient and compliant, like you said?
1: Yeah, it's just a different, um, chemical composition of the you'd say the polymer you know the old bread and butter running shoe was was ethylene vinyl acetate foam um and that's uh ethylene molecules and vinyl acetate molecules that kind of get jumbled together um and it's very cheap and very you know pretty easy to manufacture now and you can tune the ratios of those and the way the way it's done um, in Lots of different ways running shoe companies have figured out how to, how to, how to tweak that people's preferences and it, and it's pretty lightweight as well. So broadly speaking, it was a great, great thing to throw on the bottom of a foot, but it really, um, it, the resiliency of it, uh, you know, that's, that's the, that's the mechanical term for the energy return is not so good. It's, you know, it's probably on the order of around 65%, 60 to 70%. Um, so it's, it's not, and it, it also doesn't have great thermal stability. It, properties change a lot in different weather. So we're, we're in winter now. Some of your, your runners are, you know, your audience are running in, I'm in Michigan right now. Uh, my Saucony Canvaras that are EVA shoes, uh, are a little bit stiffer than they were a few months ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's, that's the foam that we've been using for, you know, probably 40, 50 years now. Um, but Yeah, new advances in, in foams, especially over the last decade have really kind of changed what, you know, goes underneath our, our feet. Um, and the the new, you know, the first, first big step in foams was the Adidas boost foam, which, um, was, it's what we call it a thermoplastic polyurethane. So it's a polyurethane, which, which polyurethane is actually rubber, but the way that they foamed it out, um, you know, if, if. listeners can think of boost you, you think of like little pellets and that's what's called expanded tpu so they essentially foamed this polyurethane out thermoplastic plastic polyurethane to make it you get the very bouncy properties of rubber um but uh in much much lighter less dense form and it's still though one of the trade-offs there it still was more dense than eva so it was like more favorable on that that energy return side a little bit heavier though So this new generation of foams are actually very similar, um, similar to in the, in the vein of that kind of boost foam and the fact that they're thermal, thermoplasts, thermoplastics. Um, So they're essentially new ways to kind of configure these, these plastic molecular structures. um, And the result is more favorable properties. And actually one of the interesting things I should clarify though, is you know, the, so the Nike, the Nike shoe, that's the vapor fly and the alpha fly that we know that's Piba, Piba polyether block amide. Um, so it's, um, you know, copoly, block copolymers of, of, uh, um, you know, block amide chains with, with, uh, the, the polyether subunits in there as well. So anyway, so it's like, uh, um, trying to bring this back and <laughs> bring this back down. Um, but you have different, again, these different thermoplastics, they arrange. Um, so that's one way to do it, new materials. And so we've seen that in Nike doing that. Sockney does that. Um, I think Asics does that. Um, but the other, the approach that some other companies have taken have, has actually been to uh, essentially foam out old foams in new ways to get those properties. So... They've taken EVA or that TPU that that boost was and used um, nitrogen or carbon dioxide in the foaming process to make it change the structure, the molecular structure of the foam a little bit and make it lighter. So you see some of the like, I think, New Balance um, uh, mm, what Brooks, I think, does that as well. Um, so those are kind of old foams with, with, uh, new, new foaming techniques. Um, and that, that arrives at, at, uh, you know, a slightly more beneficial foam as well. So, so yeah, so a lot of different ways to, to, um, to dress up and and kind of create new concoctions to, to put on the foot. But, but broadly speaking, what we want is, you know, a softer foam. So that's more compliant, more energy return. So that's, you know when you compress the foam it compresses back more so i say when you when you think about those two concepts in foams compliance and en- energy return compliance is the amount that it squishes down under a given load resilience is the amount that it squishes back for that given load um so so yes yeah, so you want favorable qualities on on both of those and then and then of course you want it to be as light as possible and that's what you know that's one of the things that's really transformed the shoes now is all of these shoes that are that are better on those properties are also lighter, which which that's you know kind of a canonical heuristic of shoe design is the lighter the shoe, the better. So tying that all together, you know, these super foams are have better energy return, they're more compliant, and they're lighter. So helping us run faster. I'm glad we talked about that
0: because when (laughs) you... By the
1: way, that was absolutely not the one-minute cliff
0: notes. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm glad this isn't the radio. We don't have a certain amount of time we've got to get through. (laughs) But no, Jeff, I'm, I'm glad we talked about that because when you initially said resilient, the first thought that I had as a layperson was we're talking about a foam that is resilient to breaking down and it might last for a lot longer. And that is not exactly at all what that term means in this context. So I'm really glad we uh, we talked about that. So I want to get into some of these questions that our strength training community submitted for uh, this shoe, this super shoe discussion. And this is going to be very wide ranging and a little bit different than most of our other podcast episodes. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, but let's start with the benefits of super shoes. And you've certainly alluded to the fact that they are lighter, they squish down a little bit more and then return that energy a lot better. And so they just improve your running economy. Do, do the, does that benefit weight more towards the longer distances, like let's say the marathon, where you can see almost every elite runner wearing a version of super shoes? Or can they also help the same amount in something like a mile or even a 5k? Yeah,
1: so broadly speaking, um, they are going to be beneficial over any distance running event. Um, The way that those benefits play, I would say, I'll start by saying the benefits that we think of in the lab so from the studies that we have on them that are, you know, very short trials on running on how they improve running economy so that, you know, the first studies on the Nike Vapor Fly was 4%. Um, that running economy improvement will benefit you, you know, in, in any distance running event. Um, so, so, yeah, so broadly speaking, whether you're running a mile, uh, 5k or marathon, they're going to they're gonna shift your performance. Um, at a very, very high level, um, you can have diminishing returns on that at faster speeds, but we're talking, you know, we're talking people running faster than, you know, 4:30 a mile or something like that. Or, um, but even then it's still going to be beneficial, but it's just that once you throw air resistance into the, into the mix, there's a little bit of a diminishing return on running economy, but it's fractions of a percentage point. So broadly speaking, um, yes, they're going to be beneficial across any distance. Now, the one thing in a race that there may be greater benefits for a longer race that we don't, we don't quite have great data on this yet is the way that they may offset um, fatigue related declines in running economy. So that's something that happens as your muscles break down and your body fatigues, your running economy deteriorates. So your efficiency running deteriorates. So you know, how, how these shoes might change that, we don't know. And that's, that's something that's very tricky to study in a lab because you need to, you need to see, um, not only how somebody's running economy deteriorates, you know, in, in one pair of shoes over two hours or something like that, you then need to see how their running economy deteriorates in the new shoes over that amount of time. And then, then you can then ask the question of like, um, you know, then, you know, do you repeat that? How much of how much of that is noise? So I complexity is there in studying it, but the question remains open of like of, of you know, how much does that change that we know, how much does that benefit that we know we get up front change over longer and longer distances? And I would speculate, um, from my own experience in the shoes, as well as kind of observing performances in longer races, that um, that I I think they might. You know that benefit probably comes into play. The order of magnitude is is probably smaller than the than just the upfront benefit, um, but it's but it's there. So I would say it's probably going to percentage wise move performances in the marathon further than it is in the 5K, um, but still substantially move performances in both domains. So if we put numbers on that, um, you know, there's the New York times a few years ago actually did a nice big data analysis on the effect of the vapor fly. And they found that for, um, you know, for the very high level runners, it was shifting performances by about 3%. But then once we, once we moved back to like, you know, two and a half, three hour, four hour marathons, we started seeing four to 5% performance shifts. Um, so I would say, you know, in, in that range for people thinking of like a four to 5% marathon shift, You know the 5K shift might be three to four percent or something, Um, and that's just kind of speculating that that kind of uh, fatigue uh, fatigue protection (laughs) we'll call it uh, happening in the later race. That again, I don't have we don't have data to support that, but that's just kind of my own speculation reading those phenomenon. There is there is a little bit of data though, to and maybe this is um, something you would want to get into as well of some of the protective effects of the shoes that might contribute to that performance benefit, but also is one of maybe the benefits of the shoes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, let's
0: what, can we talk a little bit more about those protective benefits? Are, are you saying protective from fatigue, protective from other stresses like maybe, uh, injury stress, uh, impact forces, anything like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I would say all of those are, um, uh, inputs into your perception of fatigue or not even perception of fatigue, manifestation of fatigue. Um, yeah, so, so one of the really early studies that, that came out, this was a, this was a conference presentation actually by, by a group at the Nike sports research lab. Um, but it was, it was a pretty cool design where they, they, yeah, it was actually two, two small studies where they had, they had runners run, um, see if I get this right. They had them run three hard tempo runs in a week, um, controlled on heart rate. So essentially the same physiological effort. Um, And they were doing them, they kind of did a crossover design where they did them in the Nike Pegasus and then the the Vaporfly. And of course the speeds up front were faster in the Vaporfly as you would expect. I mean, it's not just a better shoe, it's lighter, all all that stuff. Um, But the difference grew over two weeks of doing that. So so essentially, you could read into that that the subjects were getting less beat up in the Vaporfly and able to sustain their performance where they're you know declining in the Pegasus. And then the second one that was probably a little bit more, you know there that's that's a very I think that's an interesting interesting there are a lot of there are a lot of issues that that you could like poke at <laughs> in that design, but I think it's a good piece to have on the radar. But the one that was really interesting was they did a study after the Portland Marathon and runners who ran in the Vaporfly versus the Pegasus. So in your tradition, you know, your next gen foam versus your old EVA foam. Um, and the runners that ran in the Vaporfly had substantially less markers of muscle damage in their blood. Um, so the, you know, the inference there is like, you know, both of these people, you both of these groups presumably went to, you know, maximal, you know, maximal exhaustion in the marathon and beat their bodies up. But in the ones wearing the super shoes, they had a lot less muscle damage. Um, and so that that to me, you know, you can kind of read into that, that one of the benefits, um, and this is supported by a lot, you know, almost anybody that runs in the shoe, the shoes will say this is like, you, you don't feel as beat up after you run long or run hard. Um, and that's one of the benefits, I think, that that it does not—you don't incur that muscular trauma as much as you do in in other shoes. So I think you're still limited, you know, I mean, still limited by muscular capacity, but you're still limited by, you know, your your aerobic anaerobic physiologies in in a race, but no longer, or to a lesser extent, is the. Um, the breakdown, you know, the actual structural breakdown of your body, a limiting factor, um, shifted that backwards or, you know, lower on the hierarchy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's certainly one of the benefits both in, both in racing as well as certainly in training.
0: Yeah. This is, totally reminds me of, you know, when I was in college and my friends would run their first 10 K of the season on the track in spikes. And then the next day they'd be hobbling around and their calves would be absolutely shredded because, you know, back in 2005, when I was in college, we didn't have the super shoes. And so we were wearing the most minimal spikes and it really put you in that aggressive position. And, and the muscle trauma was just so substantially higher. And from what I'm hearing about this, this potential benefit of super shoes, forcing you to or not forcing you, but uh, just Creating an environment where you're incurring less muscular damage, it seems to me that one of the primary benefits of that might be the fact that you could then train a little bit harder and then put a put out a better performance on race day because you're protecting yourself from hard workouts or challenging long runs. And you might be able to run a little bit more mileage. You might be able to you know, just recover better and then have more productive training sessions after your hard workout and so to me it it seems like there could be a small benefit in that regard as well
1: absolutely, and I would actually i would I would say that is that is one way that you could posit the benefit, but i would i I'm, I'm I think that's very tempting for a lot of runners too um to think that like well, I'm less beat up, so I can either go longer or go harder, and I think that could be true. But I also think maybe, maybe the, the more um, strategic use of them might be to do the same training, but absorb the training stimulus better. So if the idea being, you can go out and do the same training, but because you're not incurring this muscular damage, your body can actually adapt to the physiological stress much better. Um, That's, that's my own speculation. That's something that I've both in my own running and training as well as is how to recommend this to others i've i've thought about this a lot and i don't have a good answer but i think that those kind of two paradigms of like well i've now i now i now have more capacity with which i could do work should i fill that or should i continue to do less and maybe potentially just recover better and be able to um yeah, basically, put your body in a better state to adapt to the physiological stresses. I don't know the answer to that, but it but it gets back to that idea that um, either way, it seems like it creates more room for growth. Um, and so I certainly, I, I definitely think that's that's one of the ways that these shoes are going to change the trajectory of our sport in the long term. Like up front, they're moving times forward. You know, whether it's two percent, three percent, four percent. We've shifted times, like as soon as you put the shoes on, but I think the thing that is going to have the most profound impact is that it will subtly change training paradigms, probably be able to do. And I think very specifically for marathon racing, probably be able to do, you know, slightly larger volumes of, you know, very specific marathon work. So, you know, very specific work, you know, right under your anaerobic threshold, um, you know, basically right in that, that sweet spot do you either start, start doing more work there or, you know, essentially adapting better to the work that, that you are, you know, should be already doing there. Um, and then, and then the other can of worms there is like how that even plays out in the developmental level. So once, you know, if, if kids from a young age start running in these and aren't, I mean, I think back to how frequently I was sore as, as like a middle school and even high school and even very early in college. And I think back, I'm like, man, I haven't been like viciously sore in a really long time. Um, maybe that means I'm not doing something right. No, I don't, I think that's it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but uh, I, back, you know, we can all think back to when, in, in our, you know, the first, think back to the first five years of your running journey. Um, seems like there were a lot of times where you had like just muscles that were ripped up. Um I'm very curious to see how this, if this facilitates like much greater growth for at a, at a very young level. Um, And that's, that's both exciting, but also a little troubling because, you know, these are not cheap. And so there's that level of like access, but I, but yes, I think getting back to this, there are a lot of ways that I think these are going to move performances forward beyond just the immediate benefit of putting them on. And that is, you know, changing, changing training paradigms and and capabilities.
0: Yeah, that's going to be really fascinating. And and I'm sure over the next five to 10 years, there's going to be more and more studies looking at some of those issues and new study designs that are going to teach us new things about these shoes. And I do want to get to some of the better uses of these shoes, like how to more strategically use them in your training. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about uh, the benefits of the shoes, and you alluded to this earlier, saying that there is actually a bigger increase in uh, performance improvement for you know the three, four-hour marathoners compared to you know the elites and the sub-elites closer to to two hours and two hours and twenty minutes or so. Um, so I did get a question for you know the runners whose race pace is let's say eight minutes a mile. Is there still a reason for wearing these shoes and? After talking to you for the last 20 minutes or so I think your answer is going to be yes is that right
1: oh absolutely yes um, and and that's actually one of the cool things about the the very first study that was done on these um, in at the University of Colorado they tested they tested the shoes at four speeds and it was I mean it was an incredibly elaborate study design because had to test three different shoes um, at you know and when you test these you got to do them uh, in what we call like a randomized Mirrored design, so you're testing like shoe A, C, B, B, C, A. Um, So they're doing that, but then testing the subjects on four different days, um, so that they could get them at four different speeds. And so one of the the, one of the really cool findings that came out of that was showing that the there was no speed dependency, you know, on a treadmill of the benefit. So the the running economy that gain that people saw, the efficiency gains that they saw in the shoes. Were the same at eight minutes a mile as at five twenty a mile. Um, so, so yeah. So broadly speaking, you know, if you're running at eight minutes a mile, they're going to be probably just as benefit beneficial for your economy. Now, the reason, one of the reasons why they are seem to be more beneficial, you know, at the at, at slower speeds in in a race, is getting back to that idea of air resistance. So, if you're on a treadmill and you measure it four different speeds. You have no air resistance. As soon as you go outside, the faster and faster you go, you encounter more and more air resistance. And at very low speeds, um, it's basically negligible. It's very small. Um, But at the speeds of, you know, once you get down to like two and a half hour or two and a half hour marathon pace, and then like, you know, faster and faster than that, it really, you know, the effect really spikes up. And so that's why at the slower speeds, you you see a, a bigger benefit, but it also could be, And this is where, you know, we're going to see, this is what research needs to explore. There also could be, and I, you know, the notion that some people running at slower speeds might have certain gait characteristics that respond better to the shoes. And we don't know exactly what those are yet. Um, You know, that first study kind of suggested that there could be a difference between foot strike patterns, that people with, you know, four foot, midfoot or four foot strike have a slightly smaller response. And we're talking like, you know, on the order of three and a half percent versus four point two percent or something, you know. And then the heel heel strikers were slightly more responsive to the shoe. And part of that could be because you essentially have more of that foam to take advantage of when, when you land on your heel. But what that is is to illustrate the idea that there could be gate characteristics of of you know, people running four to five hours for a marathon or something that, that, you know, might benefit a little bit more for them. But broadly speaking, it's going to be the running economy benefits going to be pretty speed independent.
0: I'm glad you started talking about gait because I was going to ask about that. There were a couple of questions that came in about, you know, whether or not the shoes are more beneficial for the midfoot or forefoot strikers or you know are super shoes beneficial for folks who overpronate substantially and you know it seems like a lot of the the questions have this kind of undertone of well if i'm slower i'm not going to get the benefit or if i'm a heel striker i'm not going to get the benefit and i'm actually a little surprised that the benefits might actually be a little bit greater for slower runners for runners who might heel strike than those who don't. And so that's very encouraging because these shoes can actually really help, you know, the, the more recreational runner, the runner who isn't, you know, knocking on an Olympic trials qualifier door. And, and that's just really exciting to me.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like I said, it's actually, um, it certainly, certainly goes to the, yeah, to the opposite of that, where it's, there's, there's good reason to believe they might be a little bit more beneficial for a heel striker. But that being said, I also want to take this as a chance to tell your listeners, like, there should not be the undertone that like heel striking is worse than midfoot or forefoot striking. Um, that that's, that's another conversation that, that we could have another time, but like, um, there is no correct foot strike. So like you look at, world championship marathon, like seven of the top 10 guys are going to be heel strikers. Um, so, or women. Um, so yeah, so it's, it don't, I would, I would also, I would also say there should not be any supposition of, um, good or bad on, on that characteristic of gait. but what there are, you know, there are aspects of gate that are you know independent of foot strike that, that might lead people to be more or less efficient. And that's where, where the, um, yeah, where the shoes might kind of affect that in ways that we don't even know. Because this is one of the interesting things that, you know, we have this treadmill in our lab that can do pressure measurements underneath your foot. So real-time, you know, patterns of how, of how you, essentially how you develop pressure throughout foot strike. Um, and it's fascinating to look at people in the sh- these shoes versus normal shoes, because the way you move over your foot as you run, the... you know, the force signature and the pressure signatures are, they are that they're very unique and very individualized. Like I would say it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a fingerprint. (laughs) It's like a footprint maybe. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's a very, you have a, everybody has a unique way of, of loading and unloading themselves over their foot. And these shoes have very, because of the plate have very constrained, like movement paths and architectures. But then that foam also affords kind of different loading styles as well. So it's like everybody just interacts with it so differently. Um, And yeah, so there are going to be different people that kind of get pulled into different trajectories. (laughs) Um, That's what, I mean, again, looking at different people running in these and I I look at the pressures in the ground, it literally looks like that plate pulls their foot into kind of one plane of motion. Um, and so different people are going to respond to that differently. And, you know, some people, yeah, for some people, it could be very beneficial. Some, it could be less beneficial. That's one of the things though, that with these shoes is it's like, they're pretty much universally beneficial, just the degree to which they are beneficial changes. But yeah, the, the individual interaction with the architecture is certainly an area for, um, yeah, that's gonna be a lot of work to unpack the nuances of that.
0: For sure. And and it makes me think that, you know, you saying that the the fiber plate sort of brings you into this one motion track, is that gonna be more beneficial for someone who over pronates than than someone who doesn't? Because it might, you know, create more of a a, a neutral gait or or is it just your body's gonna move the way it wants to move? And that's that.
1: Yeah. I, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, but I can, I can maybe give some thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know, the concept of like, you know, over pronating or, or, you know, neutral transition heel to toe is there, there is a lot going on mechanically there. Like I think the, the running shoe industry did a, a pretty good job of like dichotomizing it into like three nice little categories. But it, it in reality is is so widely varied, um, to the de- you know the degree to which people's you know, ankle complexes, you know, and, and foot complexes you know, move through gait and, and distribute forces. Um, but and so I think the w- the way that for one person who you know looks like they you know quote unquote overpronate versus another who has maybe the very similar past, the way that they are moving forces through their foot and ankle joints um, could be totally different. So they could respond to the shoe totally different. Um, and I mean, it's funny you look at, I mean, most, like most elite East Africans, if you look at the way that their feet and, and ankles can move while they're run, they have what many would consider like quite flat feet and like substantial quote unquote pronation when they run. Um, but because, you know, they have very compliant ankles and, and very kind of uh, say robust um, movement patterns. <laughs> um, they, you know, they they obviously benefit from from the shoes, um, or seem to, and uh, and are not, you know, deleteriously affected by them. Um, but different people might have those same movement patterns and have you know, more kind of egregious interactions with it. So. So yeah, so I think you can look at again, look at lots of different cases, like for and against it. I think one of the maybe the the um, interesting cases with the shoes that you see, I, and I would, this is something that I would caution against is people like putting their orthotics or like corrective insoles in them. Um, I would, good, I would, I would advise against that. And and actually, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> I maybe I should, maybe I should let people figure out what works for them. So I'll I'll say that, but I will say like putting two very rigid, uniquely rigid pieces together is going to create a very, um, it's going to be an interesting interaction probably.
0: Yeah, this is interesting, Jeff, because I did get a question about putting insoles in super shoes. And the reason was, you know, this particular runner is concerned that, you know, they're just not very comfortable in a more neutral shoe, like, you know, most of the super shoes really are. And they want the extra support of their insoles. And so it sounds like the interaction between the shoe and the insole is just not really well understood, and it could cause problems, and we just don't know. Is it something worthy of maybe talking to either your podiatrist or, or someone, maybe your coach, uh, or, or simply experimenting and, and finding how it feels?
1: Yeah, honestly, I think your podiatrist or your coach are like probably not going to have a good answer. <laughs> um,
0: if you don't have a good answer, I don't know
1: if anyone will. <laughs> well, and, and I, I was going to say they might. You might risk I don't know from from depending on who you ask you might risk getting like a very dogmatic answer um, that's like oh yeah you should definitely but I will say there's not there is no evidence to tell you you know and I could again existing in this world scientifically I could come up with lots of different reasons why it could be beneficial or not beneficial or or neutral like no like so I, I would say my recommendation is is if somebody's you know really preferring to use an insole um, to just do it super gradually, like, like, use the shoes and put them in for one mile (laughs) and run or, or, or do a very short track session, like, you know, like, whatever your workout was going to be do like a quarter of it or a half of it. So the idea with that is do something that you cannot, that you will not damage yourself so much that you cannot come back from it. But if there is something bad that comes of it, that might throw up some red flags before you do any damage. And, and so what I would say to that is do that. Ideally, you know, if anything, if, if anything is uncomfortable during the session, immediately stop. Um, but assess how you feel the next day and two days later. And then if there are no issues, increase the volume. And and so the idea with that is not substantially, but maybe again, like just very gradually. So maybe incorporate them in over four to five, you know, workout sessions. And so the idea there is just kind of inch yourself along to triangulate the sensations (laughs) that that you might get. Um, But that being said, you can also use that same protocol of, very small doses of, um, of that to maybe try running in them without the inserts. Um, you know, that is like try running and you don't want to do those two things at once because then you'll confound the effect. You won't know if you're sore (laughs) because or not, but I would say pick one of those two things and, and try them. And, And I would actually say for most people, um, I would think that you could probably if it's dosed in very gradually, um, you can probably use the shoes safely without, um, you know, without incurring any, any, any substantial, um, you know, need for, for some sort of insole. Cause I think broadly speaking, um, our bodies, our bodies do a great job of adapting to the stimuli we give them so long as we do not overload them initially and give them proper time to recover. So if you're somebody who wears, you know, inserts, I would say essentially just work in the shoes either with or without your inserts very gradually and then, you know, course correct as needed. But, but yeah.
0: Seems like a very similar conversation that I had almost 20 years ago about racing spikes. You know, do you put your insoles in racing spikes? And it's sort of like this interesting situation where, well, you're sort of defeating the purpose of the racing spikes, but, you know, maybe you do need the support, but if you did it gradually enough that you wouldn't need the support. So there's lots of different ways to think about it, but I really like the approach of You know, just like we do with long runs and workouts, we're going to gradually increase the dose, and we're going to use that very important concept of progressive overload to get us used to that stimulus, so that we can handle it well and then benefit from it. Um, So I've heard you talk about using the shoes in workouts, and our next big topic is when to actually use these shoes. They are racing shoes. Uh, Every runner has heard that they shouldn't try anything new on race day. So we should probably be wearing them in training. Now I've seen people wear super shoes out at the grocery store and (laughs) (laughs) I've got questions about, should I wear them for my long runs? Should I change into these super shoes for strides after an easy run? So what is the best way to think about when to best take advantage of super shoes and training so you're getting benefits from it you're improving your fitness you're not putting yourself at an increased risk of injury and hopefully getting to the goal that most runners have which is i want to have a good race in these on race day
1: yeah uh it's all like definitely a lot of a lot of good questions there i have some um i definitely have some thoughts on kind of the heavy hitters of of when to use them on key training sessions. But then the ways to even further incorporate them, I think, are uh there's a lot, there's there's a lot of hypotheticals we could play out. Um, so yeah, definitely on race day, you're gonna be want, wanting to race in them. And so then we can work backwards from that. If you want to race in them, you should ideally have some training sessions. So minimally, you're going to want to have, you know, one or two long training sessions in them. So that's kind of like I would say the minimal use case of them. And there could even, you know, you could even postulate unique benefits to using them sparingly like that because, um, yeah, so I'll, 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 maybe I'll circle back to that at the end, but then, you know, expanding out your use of them personally, for me, I like to do my long for, for me, like I'm, you know, I'm a, I race on ultra distances over the roads. Um, and so my long run each week is kind of one of my key workouts and I usually do it with some, some faster speed within it, um, or some specific speed. Um, so I like to use super shoes in almost all my long runs each, you know, so once a week I'm using them for that. And then I've also started using them for long intervals once a week as well. So basically twice a week, I'm putting them on. Um, and then if I'm doing, I might have, if I have one other session a week might not be in, in the super shoes, um, or it might be. <laughs> so it might be three times a week. But so broadly speaking, it's like, you know, my key, faster, specific work during the week is in those shoes. And that's, I think there's probably two benefits to that. One, there's that idea of not incurring the muscular trauma. So that's substantial. So that's key. But then I think the other thing that's very important, and this gets to maybe some of the other use cases for them, is they are a different mechanical sensation to running running in them. So getting back to the very first, one of the very first questions about like how that kind of compliance and resiliency and then the the plate and the architecture, like and not damaging your legs as much. Like, I <laughs> I always tell people, like, I feel like when I put the when I put those shoes on for the first time and ran in them, I thought, like, this feels like biking. It's like, I feel like my legs are kind of going in this like perpetual motion and not feeling any sort of trauma. Um, so it had just this sensation that it's like just a different mechanical interaction with the ground. Um, and that, you know, that's partially due to the foam, but also very much due to the plate. So, so with this idea that you are interacting with the ground slightly differently, I think there's a, there's a, Plausible argument to be made or case to be made that training with them, maybe over a very long time scale, your mechanics might subtly adapt to like better use that technology. (laughs) Um, I don't, again, I don't know the answer to that. Um, And that I think would require definitely a very long term study. Um, But uh, I I think there's reason to believe that, that because. Honestly, for me, I was blown away at how beneficial they were up front, you know, in those early studies it's like people have no experience with these shoes, they put them on and they're immediately beneficial. Whereas I, anything that's beneficial mechanically, my mind is always thinking like you might have to like train to harness that mechanical benefit somehow or adapt to use it. Um so I I I wonder, that's to me an open question, but that's one of the reasons why I use them in training is thinking like over time, subtly adapting to use them. And that gets back to why I think there could be unique benefits, you know, for youth, youth, you know, athletes that are currently have very, I call very plastic mechanics, malleable mechanics as they're still developing. Like if you're developing now on this new architecture of footwear, you might be using it better again, that's just speculation. Um, but that's, that's one of the reasons why I think using them, um, uh, throughout the week, especially in specific sessions, very important. Um, you know, first and foremost, again, kind of summarize for the, um, the benefit of, you know, not incurring the muscular trauma. So you can either, either do more, do a little bit more or in, you know, kind of where I lean towards is, is, is absorbing the training better. (laughs) Um, because you don't have to also rebuild your the muscles um, to as to as great of an extent and then second to maybe start to learn to interact with that that kind of new novel mechanical interface of the shoes Um, but then to your second to to the other question about other ways to use them in training like maybe doing strides in them i actually think doing strides in them is is a good way to get to that second benefit of kind of adapting to the mechanical sensation one of the things that a lot of people push back on very early on are thinking like, well, these can't be good for really fast things because it just feels so weird when you try and run fast in them. But I think that that actually is a like a fallacy or, or kind of a um, say a yeah, a bias that people, an irrational bias that people have of like the sensation of immediately trying to accelerate because you don't have that interaction with the ground, that that immediate responsiveness. But it's like if you give it ten strides, you can actually get get up to a, a faster speed, um, and carry a faster speed. So I think again, understanding that subtle those subtle um, mechanical differences and learning to to work with them is very important. And strides strides can help you adapt to that. I I, I would suspect. So I think there are, there is that benefit. Um, But then maybe the, the, the next step is like, well, should I use them every day? (laughs) Um, and I don't know, I, I think there, I mean, there could be some people that do there are, I mean, there are, I've talked to a lot of, especially older, like elderly runners that are like, yeah, I love running these every day because they don't, my, my, my legs can handle it. (laughs) Um, and I think for some people that could work and that could be a good thing. The only thing that's tricky is like that plate that plate really does. I have unique effects and and they, it probably affects everybody differently. And this is where I don't have a good answer for it, but like, I would be afraid of using something that has such a constrained movement path habitually, because I suspect it could you you might atrophy some structures or you might overly stress some structures like that are trying to, you know, your body. I think one of my golden rules is, you know, with running is just imposing variability on your system. It's, you know, I think one of the reasons why running on softer surfaces is probably, you know, might be good for some people or protective for injuries is not because, the surfaces are softer, but because every footstep is different, and so it imposes variability. And so I think like the plate might actually be a healthy source of variability used a few times a week, but used every day, it could be, mm, it it could be long term maladaptive for some people. Now that being said, for the same reasons it might be, or not the same reasons, but for different reasons, it might be um, beneficial for other people that might have like certain. I don't know, characteristics. So, one of the things that maybe this is unsatisfying for your listeners, but but like it does come back to like there are, there, you kind of got to learn to read how, how it affects your body because every single person, like I said, your, your interaction with the ground is, is a, it really is like a fingerprint. Um, uh, and no, if you're doing handstands, it's actually a fingerprint, but, um, but uh no so it's a very unique individualized thing and and so the way that the foam and the plate especially the plate um in the case of of that is is going to interact will dictate how much you want to use them but i think broadly speaking using them on specific longer days is is a really important thing in in training um if you want to race well in them now i now i said, said i would bring it back I, this is something that's been on my mind lately. And I, I told you what I do in training. You know, I use them, you know, probably about two times a week. Um, but one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is like, is there a benefit to not using them at, at all in training? And almost like, you could almost think of like altitude training. Um, but like for your muscle, now the altitude, the, the stress is, not of is old shoes. <laughs> um, if you do, if you train predominantly in traditional footwear and then maybe once or twice before a race, you put them on to get, you know, to make sure you're, you know, you don't get blisters or anything like that. Um, and then just racing them is, does that create like an augmented benefit? Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. Like as, as I've used them a lot thinking like, am I missing something here? Like doing, doing more running, like actually beating my legs up and making them stronger. Like, is there something to be had there? I don't know. It's, so I, I just say that because I think it's an open question. I don't want to say there is a, a certain right answer to use them. I hedge, I hedge towards using them frequently in training for all the reasons I described, but I could see a case where, where there is a unique benefit to like, you know, maintaining the leg strength in, in old shoes. I will tie all of that together and say that like, you know, plural of anecdotes, not data, but you know, the master Eliud Kipchoge has been using these two to three times a week in training for the last probably going on six or seven years now. Um, And he's certainly extended his career longer than anybody thought he would and has continued to be very successful. So I think if you're going to key off any anecdote, that's probably a good one to see that using them in training can, can be very good long-term.
0: And perhaps, variability is is a good kind of theme or, or big principle that we can use in, in this scenario too, where, you know, we don't want to do all, we don't want to do nothing. We kind of want this little middle ground. Uh, and I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this discussion is the contrast between the immediate benefit of these shoes, just putting them on and you being faster right out the gate. And then this discussion, this long-term benefit, this potential adaptation that could happen to it. And then, you know, how how you could really use that and harness it in your training. And and it very much reminds me of the conversation maybe 10 or 12 years ago about minimalist shoes and running in five fingers. You know, we're, we're racing in spikes, which don't really have much under your foot at all. So maybe we should do our workouts in spikes. Well, maybe we should be minimalist more often. And I, I feel like the pendulum always sort of Kind of rests more in the middle after you know we get really excited about something and then there's maybe some backlash to it and now okay we have a little bit more reasoned approach to this and instead of you know going all super shoes or no super shoes maybe your approach is is potentially the better approach. Um, now we've talked a lot about benefits, Jeff. I do want to talk about some drawbacks. Um, you know, there have been some folks who say that those plated shoes limit ankle dorsiflexion, and maybe that's a good reason to only use them for racing or, you know, the impact on lower leg injuries, just specifically, you know, the post-tib or Achilles. Um, what do you, what's your view on the injury risk of these shoes? And maybe more specifically, the fact that, you know, you've talked about how they do change your mechanics. Is that change in mechanics a potential downfall or, you know, is it a potential injury risk? How do we wrap our heads around this?
1: Yeah. Uh, super good question. And I would say again, gets back to very individualized responses to these, um, they, that, you know, that plate is something that is going to, um, really stress the ankle complex, you know, more, um, when you run. And this is, And it's actually one of the things that is one of the nuanced differences between all of the different super shoes. Um, But it definitely, you know, that longitudinal stiffness in the shoe is going to, yeah, put a lot more stress on your Achilles. Um, But it also then by doing that kind of changes, changes some of the way your body controls itself up the chain. I would say that for people that have limited ankle range of motion and maybe have had achilles issues like you got to be very very cautious starting out and working these in and that's actually i mean that was my um that was my situation when when early on when the shoes came out um i was having a lot of achilles issues and i just couldn't i couldn't run in them (laughs) um like it just it hurt to run in something that was so so stiff on that plate and and as i rehabbed and got back into it, I was able to start running the shoes. Fine. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's certainly, certainly a consideration that people need to have if that's, if that's an area has been an area of concern. Um, but I've also had, I mean, I like last winter I had like really bad, um, like anterior anterior tib issues. From doing some very hilly running, like series of very hilly, like long, long hilly sessions in the shoes on pavement, because like that, um, the eccentric work of of uh, of the anterior tibialis, like when you're running downhill with that plate, because you essentially now have this much longer lever that you're trying to like you know, eccentrically slow down, um, it just destroyed that <laughs> that in, in my leg, um, and so I, so it's like it it varies different, different muscles, just kind of controlling that, that stiff plate underfoot. Just have to be aware that it's going to, it's going to affect pro. Well, I I was going to say, it's probably going to affect you, but some people it might not at all. Um, you know, I've known uh, other people have said that they started running them and immediately had Achilles issues, but then again, that's washed out against Lots and lots of people running in them and saying nothing but great things. (laughs) Um, so again, it gets back to that idea that, yeah, these, these, um, plates, uh, their purpose is to, you know, really stiffen up to the, essentially the joints underneath your foot. Um, so by doing that, it's going to, you know, demand a different response in, in your ankle. Um, and then subsequently, up, up your legs. So, so yeah, so just understanding that, that it's going to change that, that interaction that you have with the ground and being very judicious in, in how you, how you bring them in. So that is certainly one of the, definitely one of the downsides um, is understanding, understanding that. And, and, uh, and just again, kind of dancing with it early on. And I would also say like, that is going to be one of the differences between these shoes. I've had, I've had a lot of trouble wearing the Adidas shoe. (laughs) Um, and I like, it's, it's just the strangest sensation. And I say that, I mean, I have no, no ties to Adidas or Nike or anybody. Um, but it's just something that the way that I don't know if it's the way that the rods are decoupled or just the way that, um, you know, something going on with, the plate versus the rods, something, it, it just, I've had, I've had a like I've, I tweaked a hamstring, I tweaked a hip flexor. (laughs) Um, and it's, uh, on different occasions wearing those shoes. And it's like very consistent. I've had like three different sessions wearing those and, and each time something gets tweaked. Um, but maybe again, that speaks to something that like, I could, you know, slowly work them in and adapt to them and, and, and be fine. Um, cause they are, I mean, they are a different sensation on my feet that I could totally see how for some people, they would actually be more comfortable than, than Nike's. Um, but that all, you know, I say that just to underscore that, like the, these are different shoes that I've had different issues with in, in, in each one. Um, whereas, like I said, the vapor fly had a very immediate effect on my, you know, my ankle and Achilles complex. So understanding how the different super shoes and their different stiffening technologies underneath them are going to affect your lower limb structures, just knowing that they are going to probably have an effect and being cautious in, in bringing that into you, into your running is probably just the most important thing.
0: Yeah. I think one of the big things that I'm learning from this conversation is that number one, these super shoes are all different. They're going to affect you differently depending on if you're wearing one brand over another brand. And then the other thing too, is the fact that, you know, they are simply a different stress on your body and like any different stress, whether or not you're going from sea level to altitude, you're going from totally flat terrain to super hilly terrain. You're getting in the gym and doing squats and deadlifts for the first time ever, or you're wearing super shoes for the first time. There's so many examples of different stresses we can add to our training, but no matter what it is, we've got to be smart about it. We've got to be judicious about it. And we have to recognize that we're all individuals. We respond differently to things. And we almost have to take a a scientific testing approach to things with small doses to see how we respond and to see how quickly we can start using these shoes as just a new training tool in our arsenal. Um, Jeff, did they last a long time? I, I got a big question about just durability because some, some of these shoes are saying they're only good for a certain number of miles. And I had one runner tell me that he's been wearing them for 400 miles and most of his other sort of normal standard shoes don't even last that long. So are they more durable or less durable?
1: Yeah, I, and you know, I've maybe got some data on this. That's something I'm currently working on in the lab right now is doing material property testing on these different shoes. And from my measurements, um, I, they hold up really well. Um, (laughs) and I actually think that's one of the benefit new benefit, the benefits of these new foams. Um, maybe it might not be the case with some of the like EVA foams like, um, that, you know, use nitrogen or carbon dioxide. I don't know. Um, but with the the new polymers, like the ones that are in Nike, um, or presumably, um, I'm not actually sure what the polymer is in the Adidas shoe, but the Saucony ones as well. Um, those those new polymers hold up really, really well, much better than EVA foam. So, like I've had, I've measured, you know, vapor flies on, you know, on. We have this machine we call it a material test machine that delivers known loads and displacements, uh, to the shoes to simulate a foot strike. And it measures the, you know, the energy return, the stiffness of the foam, all these things. And I've had vapor flies that are new and have over 300 miles on them. And the, the energy return characteristics are almost the same. It drops by one or two percentage points. Um, uh, the stiffness and the compliance is pretty similar. Broadly speaking for me, the shoes wear out um, structurally before they do mechanically, if that makes sense. So like my, for me, the bottoms get torn up and you can't run in them anymore because they like, yeah, they just get, get so torn up on the bottom that they're literally falling apart before the material actually degrades, which I think is fascinating. And that to me is one of the, you know, also one of the benefits of these shoes is like, they don't see that they don't seem to see the, the mechanical degradation that we would get in old like EVA shoes. Um, and so I think it actually speaks to like one of the values too is it's like one of the reasons to use these in your training is like, yeah, they're a little bit more expensive, but they do, they do last. Um, one of the scientists I'm collaborating with, um, he, uh, down at Stephen F. Austin University, he's, he's done running economy studies on these, these new shoes, he just did a test that he was telling me about on his his Alpha flies that had, um, I think, two hundred fifty or three hundred miles on them um, versus brand new ones, and the running economy benefit in them was still. I think he had like it was like three and a half versus four percent beneficial, so they're still substantially beneficial, um, you know, after a lot of miles, and the mechan- the mechanical properties of the shoes are are you know persist quite well. So, broadly speaking, I, I think that's one of the things that's really impressed me about the shoes, and that's very exciting for me about these shoes is that these new foams are much better over the long term than than our old foams. So certainly, certainly something to know.
0: One of the ways that I used to know whether or not my running shoes were ready to be retired was just looking at the compressive lines in the foam. Because if you could see lines in the foam where they have been compressed and those lines aren't going away, so they become permanent, then I know that this shoe is reaching the end of its life. And it sounds like that just doesn't really happen to the super shoes. And instead, the the bottom of the shoe, just from its friction against the ground is is really the problem. And I'm curious, if you were to put like some you know, high density rubber, you know, I'm thinking like the Nike waffle, you know, old spike, just a thin layer of that to give it some extra protection. Would that then, you know, obviously it would be more weight, but would it have any uh, negative consequences to the resiliency or the compliance of the foam?
1: No, it's actually funny. Like rubber itself has incredible resiliency. Um, so rubber is pro- rubber would probably be on the order of um, you know, might be in that like 80, 85% return. Um, and that's, that's actually what these you know, these polymers are is essentially different than this, but like at a, at a very simple level, they're essentially like foamed versions of rubber. So rubber, rubber actually is great for energy return. It's just very stiff. So the compliance wouldn't be as good um, and it's super dense. So it's going to be heavy. Um, in the context of putting it just on the bottom of the shoe, it's not going to be enough of a change to the overall compliance of the structure. I think to affect it, it will change the weight, but yeah, I mean, that would be if they wanted to extend the life of these shoes. Yeah. They could, um, you know, cover the bottom in rubber. And that's actually one of the Nike has a training version. Like they have the, I think it's called the invincible run maybe where it's that foam. It has no plate. It's just the foam. And it's you know full rubber bottom. It's not light. It's quite a bit heavier <laughs> than the racing shoe, um, but I think it would carry that longevity benefit. And the shoe, the shoe that I do most of my training in is the Saucony Freedom, which is their version of that foam, and it has rubber on the bottom. And those things I get great life out of them. I get you know they go they go further than my canvaras for sure. Um, so so yeah, so I think that the rubber definitely can can extend the life. I will say to your last point though is the crease of those lines on the shoes, that is a red herring. I think for EVA, it might be slightly telling, but is not, you know, you develop those lines after relatively short amount of compression and you still maintain some of the properties. But the interesting, the reason I bring it up is like, you definitely see that in these shoes almost as soon as you start running in them. Um, Like you have very distinct squished compressive lines on the side, but properties are still great. Um, so I think it's one of those things where they, yeah, they, um, I'm almost scared. I want to keep running in them until it's like, I'm torn that like, I want to put as many miles on them as I can to see at what point the properties do start to break down. But at the same time, I also don't want to get to that point to injure myself. So maybe that'll be a, uh, open, open-ended question. But for me in all the pairs of the vapor fly I've had, yeah, the stopping point the limiter, the rate limiter has just been the foam getting ripped up on the bottom. Um, and yeah, the training shoes that we see out there are, have taken your approach where they put, they cover the bottom in rubber. So you don't get the lightweight benefit, but get the durability.
0: Yeah. That might be really great for, for training just because maybe you don't need the carbon carbon plate for every workout, every long run, but you just want a durable shoe that's going to last for a long time. So that sounds great. All right, Jeff, uh, we've gone a little late, but uh, I'm excited to get to the final question, which is just time for wild speculation. (laughs) What do you think might be the next generation super shoe from either your work in the lab, seeing what works, what doesn't work, just your personal experience? What could we see in the future? For these next generation super shoes, something better than a carbon plate, something better than these next gen foams. What might be coming down the road?
1: It's a really good question, and and I think we're we're almost and and I maybe have uh, a little bit to do with this, but I was going to say we are constrained by what's allowed <laughs> now, um, and that was actually one of the purposes of of my proposal for you know, limiting shoe, like allowable shoes on their thickness. Um, If we were to open up that constraint, you would, I mean, you would see probably very, very thick shoes with different carbon fiber architectures going through them and maybe even other plates. Like, I mean, I think the alpha fly was kind of the taster of that where you have the AirPods as well as the foam. Um, But as soon as you have a thickness limit, it now doesn't become as benefit, like once you're operating within that, you can't, essentially can't have enough of a design space to fully realize the benefits of all these different pieces of plates and pods and and rods. Um, So my thought for the next generation of allowable super shoes, (laughs) what it's going to be um, if we are working in that design space, I would suspect that there could be you might have advances on the material front to figure out maybe how, and it's, it's hard to imagine this because the Nike, the the backs foam that's in the Nike shoe is so good. Um, but if there'd be a way to make it even a little bit lighter, so you could maintain the same properties and have that. Um, I, I wonder if we might not be able to, you know, better unpack how the plate interacts with people so we can maybe have it better individualized response. So I think that that's going to be the next generation of super shoes might just be ones that are more tailored to people. Um, so I would say maybe slight advances in foam, slight advances in architecture, but then the other thing that, that might even play out that we'll see is getting back to that individualization is like, if we can even go smaller on the super shoes that to maybe make them a little bit to get the maximal benefit for the minimal amount of shoe. So you could, you know, to see if like, well, is a 40 millimeter shoe, like, is that absolutely beneficial? Or are there some people that actually would get a little more benefit from having as light of a possible shoe with 30 millimeters. So I think just basically figuring out the individualization there. Now, if we take that constraint off and say, what, (laughs) what the next generation of super shoes. I think we're definitely going to start to see or continue to see, I should say, companies rolling out shoes that are beyond that regulation limit that are super thick. So Adidas has done it with the Prime X. Um, uh, Nike has one, but it's not, uh, I don't think it's anything substantial uh, or like very beneficial. Um, And then I think New Balance might have one coming out too. So I think we're going to start to see companies coming out with these like super maximalist shoes which then will open the door for um, architecture within the shoes of, of plate constructions. Now, to to maybe even put another like wild idea in there, I could see. I like. I wonder if somebody's going to try and make something that is like a foamless shoe. Like, could you create some sort of like carbon fiber or rigid material structure underneath the foot? to be very beneficial. So it's really hard to imagine that being beneficial because like foam, that's one of the crazy things about foam is that it is so light <laughs> that, you know, the benefit that it brings now that we have these, these foams that are almost perfect springs, like the the Pebax foam that's in the Nike shoe and the Saucony shoe, like the, energy return property, like the, yeah, the, the energetic efficiency of that spring is so close to ideal. It's crazy. And how light it is. So, and the other thing that's really important with foam is like, it allows you to load the shoe in any different vector. Whereas if you have a very constrained architecture, like something with carbon fiber, you need to load the ground in a certain way. But that being said, I, I could see a science fiction shoe that that is like, you know, some sort of super light carbon fiber architecture that you can run on. Um maybe, I don't know. So that would be that would be my wild wild speculation, but I think the more likely thing is um more tailored tailored uh tailored super shoes within within the limits. Well, I think either way it's just going to
0: be a really fascinating next decade or so as you know, there's more studies done on these shoes and we get to better understand them and that's going to be obviously leading to different types of super shoes. And like you said, better individualization of the shoes for different types of runners. And, and I think you've convinced me in this, <laughs> this episode to go buy my first pair of super shoes. Cause they sound really amazing. And I have never wore a pair
1: yet. Whoa. Dude, yeah, your, yeah. Your face was like, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. It, oh man. Uh, I don't know if anybody has any strong brand preferences. They they might jump on me, but I would say get the get the Vaporfly. Um, and like I said, my sensation the first time I ran in them was like this feels like a giant step towards cycling. <laughs> um, it's like that's the other thing that I get back to is like there's a debate, you know, a, a very valid debate on whether or not these have a place in the competitive landscape of running. And that, and I could make arguments for and against that. But I will say undeniably, whether it is good or bad for the future of the sport, they are really fun to run in. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> um, well, I'm so probably I, not
0: taking any records down, Jeff. So, yeah, I, yeah, I could just have fun with them. <laughs>
1: yeah. You'll take your own records down.
0: There you go. Well, look, Jeff, I I had a really great time chatting with you about this topic. I I think your insights are just super valuable and well reasoned. And and I think our audience is really going to love it. If people want to follow along with your work or your running, anything else that you've got going going on, are you online somewhere that we can check in with you?
1: Yeah, um, I use Twitter um, somewhat sporadically, but somewhat frequently. (laughs) Um, And Instagram, both of them are just at Jeffrey Burns g e o f f r e y b u um, r n s twitter is probably where i engage with the the scientific side a little bit more um, instagram i do occasionally post some you know some research stuff so both those are good i also have a personal website jeffreyburns.com where i list out you know if you're interested in hearing any any other podcasts i've done or or you know articles i've appeared in or written as well as my scientific publications are on there so you can check that out as well
0: Awesome. We're going to have links to that on Strength Running so folks can check it out. Jeffrey, really appreciate it. Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: And there it is, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this exploratory look at super shoes and how they can improve your running performances. Don't forget that we have show notes, more info about Jeff, links from the episode, as well as all the other resources we offer at strengthrunning.com. And finally, I'm so grateful for our sponsors. If you get value from the podcast, Please support us by supporting them. Inside Tracker is one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies in the world. They were founded in 2009 by a team of scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding these biomarkers, from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining or optimally training. And also get a look at any red flags that you might want to address with your doctor. But the best part is that they give you personalized optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers, and then a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and the process is simple, it's easy, and I just love getting the results. It's always very eye-opening. You can go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. You can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by Elemental Labs, my favorite electrolyte company. If you have a high sweat rate, or if you're like me and you just have very salty sweat, it's important to dial in your hydration. And Elemental Labs is now offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight electrolyte packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping, which is just five bucks here in the U.S. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks that doesn't have any sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. My wife loves it. I love it. I bring it everywhere with me. I go to running camps here in Colorado with it and hand out Element Salt. I give it out to my friends here in Denver, and I send it to giveaway winners on Instagram. Everybody loves the amazing taste of Elemental Lab Salt. So for those athletes who might be running five or more days per week, maybe you're training for a half marathon or longer race, or if you're outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement can help your hydration and recovery. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have now started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning to try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for this season. All right, that's it for me today, runners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your reviews of the show. Thank you for sharing this episode with your friends. It means a lot to me. We'll be in touch soon.